you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in verses 13 through 21 as our sister just read. We are going to talk today about obedience and what it looks like for the Christian to live holy lives because we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to live separate from the world. We're called to live holy lives. We're called to be obedient to the commands that God's word has for us. We need to first remember the grace of God, and that's exactly what Peter does in this letter. For the first little bit of this chapter one, Peter is just exploding off the page with gospel truth. And that's what we've been covering the past three weeks as we've considered the work of God and the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. We need to remember this grace before anything else so that we can rightly talk about what it looks like to live holy and obedient lives. Sometimes we forget the order of this. I forget the order of this. Grace drives Holiness. That's the title of this sermon. Grace drives the way in which we live, but oftentimes we're guilty of reversing that, thinking that we need to do good works so that we receive God's grace. Uh, and in a moment's time, we can flip that upside down and can be confused by it. But today, I want us to make sure that we understand the order rightly so that we can be faithful in this life. No amount of good works that you can do under heaven will grant you entrance into the kingdom of God. The only way we are allowed entrance into the kingdom of God is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And beloved, we come together every single week to talk about this because we constantly need to remember this. And that's why we bring it up often. This in theology is known as the indicatives of God and the imperatives of, of man. This is, this is what I mean. We rest in the indicatives of God's work. This is the work that God has done. It is finished. It is final. It was final at the cross. This salvation, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, will be brought to us when Jesus comes back. And we, therefore, live based on this truth. And the imperatives or the commands that are given to us in scripture are then driven by this grace. Here's the main idea from the passage today that I want us to center around. Because of the extraordinary grace of God given to us for salvation, live holy lives because he who is holy bought you with the precious blood of Christ. And that will be up there for you to see momentarily. Now look with me in verse 13 before we start looking at the points of the sermon. There's that word that begins our passage with therefore. Therefore is the beginning. It's a conjunction. It's a hinge to the text, if you will. It's actually a hinge to everything that's about to spring forward, but it's based on everything that was kind of sprung back. Therefore, first points to all that Christ did, as we've already talked about. And notice in this book, that's exactly how Peter starts his letter. He reminds them of the glorious gospel before he exhorts them. 
He wants them to praise God for his great mercy, if you remember this in verse three, because God caused our salvation. We have a living hope because we are born again, and this is sealed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance, if you remember, kept for us in heaven, and this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and it's unfading. It's guarded in heaven for us, kept through faith, going to be delivered when Christ returns, bringing this grace and this salvation to us. And this is the promise from long ago in the Old Testament, and it's the things in which angels long to look. These are the indicatives of God. And so therefore, based on these things, based on the glorious, wonderful, magnificent gospel of the grace of God, Peter is going to call the church then to live consistently with the character of the one who has saved them. And beloved, that's our responsibility today. One theologian, Edmund Clowney, says that all imperatives in the Christian scriptures begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonderful salvation of God through Jesus Christ. And this is what we do as well. We want to be faithful to the text. And so after these glorious indicatives are given, Peter lays for us out in this little passage three imperatives or, or three commands that uh, we are to respond to based in this glorious salvation. Uh, the first one's found in verse 13. We're to set our hope fully on the grace of God that is going to be delivered to us when Christ returns. Uh, secondly, we are to be holy because God is holy. We'll see that in verses 14 through 16. And then we finally are to conduct ourselves uh, to live with reverent fear in this time of exile, knowing that God is both father and judge. And so uh, these elements of obedience are to be active and, and kind of operating within us simultaneously. Uh, we are to uh, rest in the work that Jesus has provided, setting our faith, our, our hope in this grace that is to come. And yet also simultaneously, we are to live holy lives, fearing the one who also judges. Uh, but they are to work uh, interchangeably. It's like when you go into your living room and you flick on the light uh, and both the light and the fan come on at the same time, right? Uh, this happens simultaneously. The work of God is happening simultaneously, but it's rooted in the grace that has already been provided. So the first point we're going to look at today is this. Beloved, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Verse 13 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This first imperative is to set your hope fully on God's grace. Now, that word for hope is not the wishful thinking that we so often uh, use hope in our day and time. We've talked about this even recently, like, I hope I don't run out of gas on this long highway. No, this is, a, this is a different type of hope. This is a hope that's cemented with confidence. It's considering the benefits of things that are certain and true. Since the hope is living that has been given to us and the grace is profound, beloved church, we should expect that when Christ returns, salvation is coming with him for us and not wrath. That type of hope 
a certainty that is driving us throughout the course of our day. And if you remember how this hope is living and active, you have to look back into verse 3 and remember that this was secure when Christ raised from the dead. So it's sealed with the living Jesus who came out of the tomb and the spirit who has sealed us in faith. Uh, this is a true hope. It's a hope, beloved, that you will obtain one day when Christ comes back. That's what it says there in verse 13. Uh, Peter says that this grace will be received at the parousia, which is the second coming of Christ. And so we set our hope on that day. We think about the day that Jesus comes back to us. There will be a day in which God will dwell with man, his people, the bride of Christ forever. If you have time today, go read about it in Revelation 21. It is profoundly glorious. If you've ever had a child, you know you wait nine months for that child to get there, but you don't just think about it when the, the child shows up in the ninth month. You're thinking about it for the full nine months. You're putting cribs together. You're going to the store and, uh, you know, you're getting things to prepare for the day. You're taking Lamaze classes. You're working on your breathing. I don't know what it's like to work on your breathing, but my wife remembers working on her breathing. You prepare for the day. In a much more profound way, we prepare for the day that Christ comes because it's an actual day that's coming. And so we are to set our hope on the grace that is to be revealed on that day. Well, the natural question that stems from that is, well, how do we do that? How do we set our hope on the grace that is to come? Well, key, uh, well Peter is uh, quite uh, kind here. He provides two participles for us, as you see there in verse 13. These two participles are how we set our hope on the grace that is to come. And they both refer to the mind. Look there in verse 13. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Preparing your minds for action, as it says there, really is the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. And you're like, what does that mean? It doesn't have a whole lot of, uh, I, I, I guess, uh, practice in our culture today. But here's what it means. Back in the day, people used to wear long robes. And in order to gird up their loins, they would, uh, instead of uh, walking in these robes or, or running in these robes or being, uh, doing actionable items in these robes, they would tie the bottom of the robe up to their waist and they would tuck it in so that they could get ready for war, so that they could run fast. This is what it looks like to gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for battle is essentially what he's saying. It's like a boxer in our time shedding his robe before the fight. And then he says to be sober-minded. So girding up the loins of our mind is also being self-controlled with how we think. Uh, uh, making sure that uh, our thoughts are uh, not drunk on certain ideologies of the world, but are controlled by the Spirit. Thinking about the things that the Lord through his word would have us think about. In other words, we're to be controlled by setting our minds on the truths of Christ that will be revealed when he comes. Beloved, what's in your mind guides your interests. It guides your convictions. It, it guides your thoughts and your, and your daily decisions. If you watch a thriller movie, 
you are frightened after the movie. You start locking up your house after. You start thinking about, do we need more protection? Do I need to, uh, to take different actions? Uh, whatever we put into our minds is what drives us. It's when we read a novel that's sad, we're sad after it. Beloved, we are to prepare our minds for action. We are to be sober-minded. James 1 talks about we are lured and enticed by the desires of our minds. And when conceived, they give birth to sin. So we often participate in things, pursue things that we put into our mind because our mind wants those things. And Peter is saying here, in order to set your hope on the grace of God, fill your mind with truth about that grace that is to come. Prepare it, set it, gird it, be sober-minded with God's truth. As one pastor theologian says, let God's truth be the logs brought to the fire of your soul. You go and you chop down those truths, you bring them and you put them on your soul that has been born again. We do this every day. And if we are going to walk out this grace, we must set our minds to this action. And it begs the question for all of us to consider, what do you think about most of the time? Uh, what do you think about? Is it your job? Is it sports? Is it family? Is it your fears? Is it all the things you don't have? Is it all the things you want? Is it, is it your friends? Is it the weekend? Is it your circumstances? Is it sex? What do you think about? And the question is, what do you put into your mind? What do you watch? What do you scroll? Uh, what do you read? What do you reflect on? What you put into your mind often determines what you think about. There can be a lot of good things that we think about, but we can think about those things too much. And they come to uh, take up a different place in our heart than they're supposed to. And beloved, all of us, we think about things so much. And so often we think about things in the improper way or unnecessary things, things that are not helping us think about the grace of God that is to come. And Peter knows this. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the elect, remember, those who were foreknown before the foundation of the world. And he's reminding them to fill their minds with good things. He's challenging them to put their minds on meaningful desires, like good hope. He's wanting their affections, their thoughts to change the outcome of their thinking, which grows a certain hope. So just a few applications for this first point. First, set your mind on his return. Set your mind on his return. How often do you think about the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? It talks about in 2 Timothy 4, 8, that those who long for his appearing are gonna receive a crown. Do you long for the appearing of Christ? Are you, are you wait, waiting, to, Titus 2, for a blessed hope that comes when Christ comes back? This reality, when we set our mind on the things of God, it reorders our thinking. It shifts uh, our perspective in a helpful way. I'm gonna read from God's word. Think about this in Romans chapter eight, verses five through nine. Just write this verse down, listen to it, and look on it and reflect on it later. 
Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and is peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We see also just a couple chapters over in Romans chapter 12. uh, Paul gives the most glorious, dense, packed gospel account in chapters 1 through 12 of the book of Romans. And then he gets to the hinge in chapter 12. And he starts it with a therefore. Therefore, based on all the gospel truth I just told you that affects both the Gentiles and the, and the Jews, therefore I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable uh, to God, which is your spiritual worship. And this is what he says, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Beloved, do you renew your mind with the word of God? Is it your food? Is it what drives your perspective in this life? We cannot be surprised when we go to work and we're living in the flesh and we're not enjoying God when we have not set in the morning our minds, our hearts on the things of God. Number two, have you taken your soul to task about the false hopes you trust in? Uh, Consider the false hopes that you trust in. Take inventory of your soul. What do you think about? What drives you? What stirs your affection? Because that's going to bring forth fruit. What kind of fruit is it? Start thinking through what you fill your mind with, and you might arrive at the answer to that question. Number three, rightly said, our hope And to do that, we do that in community. We do that together. Uh, Beloved, it's really hard uh, to come to church once a month and to have your hope set on the return of Christ. This is why it's so important for us to gather, to pray together, to disciple each other, to love each other, to serve each other, to hear God's word together and to sing God's praises together. Consider these things. The second thing we find in verses 14 through 16, we're to be holy as he is holy. As obedient children, look what it says there in verse 14. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now this second imperative that Peter gives here is to be holy as God is holy. Be holy in all your conduct. And now we're not talking about positional holiness here. That positional holiness is that we are forgiven uh, before God the Father because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're found in him. The holiness he's talking about here is that practical holiness. How then should we live? That's the question that the scriptures are raising. That's what Peter's bringing before his people. And notice what he says. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't live the same way that you used to the day before you met Jesus. Don't be about those things. You're now a part of a different people with a different owner. 
Peter's not talking about morality here. Uh, There's a certain moral uh, action that can take place inside the world. We see that. He's talking about a different type of living. That's why he references here Leviticus 19. Because our holiness corresponds with the one who bought us and is holy. We then begin to take on the characteristics of the one who purchased us. Because after all, look how, he, look how he identifies us there in 14. We are his children. And he is to us a father. Now the holiness of God is a big theological topic. Uh, God is separated from sin always and forever. Devoted only to righteousness and his glory. That's when we read passages like Exodus 19, we see that he is the most holy one. And we see that in him there is no sin at all, 1 John 3. So we first see that God's character is holy. We see this in the covenants that he makes. We we see this in the law that he gives. When we read the law of God, we see the character of God's holiness on display. He does not lie. He does not commit adultery. He does not murder. This is the character of our God. We see this mostly on display or fully on display when the son of man from all of eternity past comes and wraps flesh around him in tabernacles with his people. We see how the character Character and the holiness of God is on display in every situation that's revealed in the scriptures. And that's why we marvel at it. That's why even the Pharisees are like, look at this. This is a different type of teacher. Who are you? For us, beloved, to be holy means that we conform our thinking, our behavior to God's character. We, we resemble the one who gave us new life. Holiness is tethered to who God is and how God lives. That's why when we read our Bibles, we look to see who God is. And then we try to mimic that in our lives. Not to gain God's favor, but because God has found favor in Jesus who saved us. And so we work from that place. This is what it means for us to be holy. We live this out. We are different, separate, distinct from the world. Beloved, we are called to be attractional people. We're gonna look a little odd to the rest of the world when we're persecuted and we don't revile in return. We're gonna look a little odd in the way that we love and serve our spouses or the way that we live out singleness in the church. We're gonna look a little odd to the rest of the world. But fear not. That's what we've been called to do as his people. And we see, uh, we see that we've been called out of an old way of living. Do you remember how you used to live? The, The sinful desires that used to strangle you, that used to drive you, that used to be your motivations in everything that you did? Uh, We see it here. We were once ignorant, but now we're knowledgeable of the salvation that has been revealed to us. We were not the children of God at one point, but now he's calling us children. We used to live in these futile ways, but now he's calling us to holy living as separate, different type of people. Society used to affirm all that we did. We used to be boys and girls with the world, and now this church is being reviled because they're different. 
This is describing the people of God. This is who we are. This is our calling. Peter is saying that we are no longer aligned with the cultural norms or the sinful patterns of the world. Uh, I used to think in my mind, how close can I get to the line of sin and still be good? You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. But now it's like, I wanna be as far from the line as I can because I'm different and I'm separate. This is the new mentality that we have as we are the people of God. And this is actually possible. Uh, This is actually possible as we read in Romans 6. Because Christ's death and resurrection actually destroyed sin's dominion over us. Before trusting in Christ, sin was our king. It doesn't mean uh, that we didn't live morally in certain ways, but, but we were always in sin because decisions were always based on ourselves. They were never for the glory of God. But when Jesus conquered sin's dominion over us by raising from the dead... We can now, as it says in Romans 6, walk in new life. And that's the hope of the people of God. That's why we see that we're gonna still sin. We see this in Romans 7, right? Romans 7 comes right after Romans 6. He's like, why do I do the things that I hate? But then he he tells us in Romans 8 to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And so we're called to set the mind on the things of the Spirit as well. We now want to deal with our sin. We want to know where our sin is. We want to be in step uh, with the character of God who saved us. Our sin now grieves us and righteousness now becomes our aim. Uh, We are dedicated to a new purpose in this life and it's glorious. We have been born again, a new living. This is what Peter is talking about. Just a few applications from this. The first one. Be convinced, beloved, that God has called you to be holy. Be convinced that God has called you to be holy. Have you in your life broken or separated yourself from the way that you used to live? A very fair question that it seems to be the question that Peter is driving at here, or at least encouraging uh, these believers. Are you living in a way today that is different than how you lived before you met Christ. And number two, take your soul to task. Take your soul to task. Uh, admit where you're still living the same way. Ask those around you, where do you see sin still there? Where do you see unholiness in my life? Go ask your spouse if you're married. If you're single, go and ask a dear friend or a family that you walk with. Uh, This is important for us to take our soul to task because when we are born again, this new salvation that God has caused, new living actually begins to occur in our life. That's what the, the Spirit does through the Word and through His empowered work. This is what begins to take place. And so you might be asking yourself, I don't know. I don't know if new life is in me. I mean, I prayed a prayer a long time ago. I've been at church a long time, but I don't know if there's new life, if I have a desire to live a holy life. Well, here are some markers of genuine conversion. These are just put together by different pastors and theologians throughout church history. Church history. 
Do you have a humility regarding your sin? Are, are you aware of your sin before God? And are you aware of your unworthiness of God's grace? If that just bounces off you like tennis balls to a tank, then let's talk further. Let's talk further. Are you growing in love and affection for God, recognizing his love and his goodness? Are you, are you desiring the things of God? And beloved, this is a slow work. This is a one step forward, two steps back, sometimes two steps forward, one step back. But are these things alive in you as you feed yourself with the word of God? Have you seen a divergence from a self-centered approach to living? Uh, where you used to think about yourself and your own rule all the time. You used to be the center of all the, the conversations or all your decisions. But now you're growing and kind of a, a growing less self-centered, considering more of what it is to be God-centered and other-centered. These are just questions to ask yourself. Uh, this holy, separated life that you've been called to will begin to bear the fruit of the spirit of God that has sealed you. Be holy. And we don't wanna make this too complicated. That's the application that Peter gives. Be holy as God is holy. So let's make it something, not, not make it something more than it is. Let's just put these things into action. And beloved, let's ask for God's help. Uh, we, we don't walk in the spirit oftentimes because we have not asked for the spirit. Ask for the spirit of God to make us holy. And not positionally, that's been done in Christ, but practically as we live out this world. And then finally, and thirdly, conduct yourselves with reverent fear during the time of exile. That's verses 17 through 21. Verse 17, if you, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the third imperative that Peter gives to conduct yourselves with fear as you live. We've talked about the fear uh, we talked about a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes, not talking about uh, being afraid of God, but it's that posture of being off-filled uh, with God, reverential, considerate of who God is. And, and here in this passage, what's driving this conduct? What's driving this fear? Well, look with me. It's the, it's the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God. God judges impartially, the text tells us, Meaning every person, Christian and non-Christian, will be judged. Now, in one great reality, the Christian is justified before God. I want to make sure that this truth is hammered down in our hearts. That you are safe in Christ for those who have put their trust in him. Uh, we see this imputed righteousness given to us in Romans chapter 3. We see that there is no charge that will be brought against the elect in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. But what he's talking about here is the faithfulness of God's people will still be on display in the last day. 
This judgment for the Christian is not one in which a charge uh, will be brought against us, uh, but rather an accounting for our life. How did we steward God's grace, God's gifts, God's gospel? Uh, we see that pastors are going to give an account for this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, it talks about this. In Hebrews chapter 13, we see that the whole church will give an account for this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, everyone is going to give an account on the deeds, whether good or bad deeds. This is what the Bible says. But our fear that he's talking about is not based in a verdict that was settled at the cross. Our fear is then based on knowing that God will judge every person according to their stewardship, if you're a Christian. Uh, their deeds, their work, their faithfulness, their obedience. And those who have been born again should live a different, separate, holy life. That's just what happens when you have been born again. It's faithful. God is working in us. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete that work. This work is moving towards the, a completion during our time in exile. And, and so look at judgment as kind of a sobering gift given to us by God that encourage us to, encourages us to live faithfully uh, today. So Peter is not causing this soul-stirring dread for the Christian, but he's reminding us that uh, our judge is before us. But look what he also says. He is our father too. He's our father and our judge. Sometimes we separate these two as a Christian, but, but he brings them together in one sentence. We have a tendency to do this with different characteristics of God. Sometimes we emphasize the majesty and the sovereignty of God so much but we don't consider the kindness and the goodness of God. Uh, sometimes we consider so much the justice of God that we don't consider the mercy of God. But in this passage, he is both father and judge, as you see there in the text. Beloved, he loves us. He's keeping us. He's guarding our salvation through faith. And he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to walk in sin but he wants us to display his holy character to a lost world. This is Psalm 67. Bless us, Lord, so that the nations would know that, you're our, that we are your people. God, do these things amongst us. What does it look like to, to, to live fearfully in exile? I think Joseph gives us a wonderful example. He's actually in exile in Egypt. Remember, he's sold into slavery by his 12 brothers, and, and he's, he's kind of out and, and down. He, he's in slavery. He's a, a servant in a house buried in a foreign country. He's not around his people. He's not in organized or proper or routine worship with his people. But as Potiphar's wife, the Potiphar's the person he's serving, the, uh, the lieutenant in Pharaoh's uh, court, uh, he's serving him. And Potiphar's wife comes to... Joseph, and he is pursued by Potiphar's wife. Now notice, he's not angry with God. Uh, he's not thinking, well, God did this to me, and so therefore I can be with this woman who's pursuing me. He tells Potiphar's wife, I will not sin against God. 
That is a man that recognizes that the eyes of the Lord go to and from throughout the earth, knowing all things. That's a healthy fear of the Lord, and beloved, we are to operate that very same way. Now, this is really important as we close up. Uh, Look with me there in uh, 18. There is a participle attached to this final imperative. Knowing that, that's the participle, you were ransomed from your futile ways. Uh, It probably means that we are to conduct our lives with the fear of God, uh, knowing that the discipline of the Lord is ever before us, knowing that God sees us because you, beloved church, were ransomed out of your futile ways, not with silver and gold like oftentimes slaves were ransomed, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what's going on here. We were bought with the blood of Christ. And sometimes when we think about our purchase with the blood of Christ, we only think about how our sin debt was canceled and our sins are forgiven and righteousness is imputed to us. And that is holy and fully true. But if you look here in this text in verse 18, it says that we were purchased by the blood of Christ from our futile ways, from our improper living so as to live faithfully, holy in this life while we're in exile. Beloved, we were bought with the blood of Christ to live holy lives. That's what it is saying. We we don't always know how to reconcile this in our minds. Uh, So often we we talk about uh, positional holiness only, but this practical holiness, uh, it feels a whole lot like legalism to us. We're like, we're talking about works and we start waving that flag of legalism. And I want us to see from this scripture that that is not what Peter is saying. That the God who caused your salvation, he, he bought your salvation with his precious blood, but he bought it so that we could also live holy lives. Not to gain his favor, but because Christ has found favor before the Father and we are in the Father. Excuse me, we are in Christ. And therefore, we can take on the characteristics of God and display them as we live out our days in this world. A couple of final applications. First, live convinced that God knows and sees all things in your life to which you will give an account. That should stir us. If we don't live that way, we don't think God is real. We don't think his word is living. And there's probably not a a hope, a desire to know him within us. Number two, if if there's areas in your life in which there's not a desire to live holy, just repent, repent, turn back to Christ. All of us have sinned and we, and we sin. But as has already been said by Corey today, we have one who stands before us, who's Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is willing and able to forgive us of our sins when we confess our sins, turn and repent. Beloved, we should ask God to give us desire to increase in holy living. 
And that's really the, 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 the rest of the, the book of 1 Peter has a whole lot of imperatives. Remember we talked about the work of God at the very first chapter of this book? And I said, it, there, man has responsibility too. We're, we're getting into that. But beloved, we, this doesn't put a new burden on us to live out holiness so that we're accepted by God. You can live out this, this, this life with faithfulness and in holiness because Christ has been accepted before the Father. It's a freedom. It's, it's a reassurance for us. It's like playing golf with Tiger Woods in a foursome and he crushes a ball down the middle of the fairway first shot and you're like, man, I can't do that. So I'm gonna give it my best shot. Live, I'm gonna hit it as best I can. God has done the righteousness, the holiness for us. Now we get to implement a, a, a faithful living for the glory of his name, for the good of our hearts and for the good of his people. And we see in passages like Hebrews chapter 12, and I, I'm afraid I don't wanna coddle you here too much. I, I want us to hear what the word of God says. Hebrews 12 says, the father disciplines us that we may share in his holiness. I want that to land on us. We are disciplined. We go through affliction in order for holiness to be growing in us. We're, we're trusting in God. We're putting our faith in God. We're realizing our weaknesses and we're depending on his strengths. And then it says four verses later, beloved, you are to strive with a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do we at least consider that we are to strive to live holy lives? And we can do that because Christ has been born in us. And then he finishes with the glorious gospel, verse 20. He was foreknown, talking about Jesus before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, church, for us who through him are believers in God. We are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. May we be faithful to remember the glorious gospel today. It was settled at Calvary. Uh, we can be faithful now to walk out this holy living, separate lives with fear during our time of exile, knowing that God hears us, knowing that God sees us, knowing that God is bringing for us a salvation that will be revealed when Christ comes for his church. And this provides us a great encouragement. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. It's living, it's active. God, I pray that we would take these things seriously and in proper order resting on the indicatives, uh, the work of Jesus, and then, Father, being faithful with the imperatives, striving for holiness, being faithful and obedient to the commands of Scripture. God, we are the first to admit we need help. We cannot do this in the flesh. If we set our minds on the things of the flesh, we will die. But if we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, we will live. God, help us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.